KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. Hi, everyone. How you guys doing? It's the last episode of Bike Month. Ooh. Bike Month, we hardly knew you. Our show, Bike Talk, is a little bit like the front page. We try to touch on a lot of topics each week. Um, our first interview is with Henry Grabar, and, and he wrote this new book called Pave Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, a delightful read with stories about parking and housing and how our built environment is built around parking. So if you want to have some good talking points to talk at a neighborhood council meeting, uh, read Paved Paradise by Henry Gabar. And here's the interview. I'm here with Henry Grobar, the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Henry, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks for having me. Your book is all over the place. It's uh, been in the LA Times, New York Times. I want to ask you first, is is this a step up from fresh air or is this a step down from fresh air with Terry Gross? Are you going to complain about bike lanes? <laughs> I'm not going to complain about bike lanes, no. It's, it's a lateral move. I think um, <laughs> the book has been benefiting from, from some of the low expectations people have about parking. Right. I think there's an assumption which I've encountered. It's the most boring subject on earth. So if you manage to tell anything about it, then uh, you've already exceeded people's expectations. Well, let, let me tell you, based on your book, it is not the most boring subject in the world. It's it's a, it's a delightful book with some really great stories. But what made you want to write a book about parking? Well, as a reporter at Slate, I wrote about cities and still do. And often my assignments would lead me to things like um, affordable housing projects and bus rapid transit, bike share you know, the architecture of uh, cities, stormwater flooding, all these urban topics. And it seemed like in subject after subject, what I was coming up with was that parking was actually the the thing that was at the heart of all these questions about, about the city. Later on, when I met Don Shoup, the Pope of Parking Studies, he told me, <laughs> whatever the question, the answer is parking. Yeah. And I subsequently realized that, that is how I was feeling um, when I decided that this might be an interesting subject for a book. Right. Well, I'm I'm so glad you wrote it because it's a delightful read. And the only other book I know about parking is Donald Sheep's book, The High Cost of Free Parking. And I think your book has the chance of really, you know, getting into the mainstream media and getting into not just bicycle advocates and, and transportation nerds, but getting into the hands of everyday people. Because once you see the absurdity of some of our parking laws and rules, you realize it's it's it is ruining our cities. Yeah, I think this is this is the book that you would give to I hope your um your relatives to to help them understand why you've become so radicalized about uh our culture and parking and all this stuff. One of the things I wanted to start with is this idea of parking anxiety. I suffer from that. Is that a uh what's the word? Is that a discernible malady now or what? Well, I, I suffer from it too, Taylor. Anecdotal evidence suggests that uh, many Americans get irritated about um, having to look for a place to park. I think that's yeah. a fair assumption. I think one of the quotes, I one of the stats I first read when I first you know became kind of a transportation nerd was that 25% of local traffic is people cruising around the block looking for parking. 
that's a very useful entry point to thinking about the problems with our parking management system because some of this stuff can be kind of abstract, like the impact of parking on affordable housing. But the impact of parking on traffic is really clear, and the prob and and the ex and the harms of traffic are equally clear. And so, if you can help people make the connection between um, our poorly managed parking system and uh, the consequences of all the traffic that we have to endure, which is to say, well, wasted time, carbon emissions, local pollution, crashes, yeah, um, violence, all right. that. Violence, the violence, both of the you know car culture generally, and also then of people fighting over parking spots when when parking is is hard to come by. And I think that's a that's a very useful entry point. And parking is the availability of parking is what controls how many people will drive, and the shortage of parking um, will create traffic. And 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 so if you're interested in solving some of our transportation mm-hmm. problems, and obviously, as you know, transportation is our number one source of greenhouse gas emissions, then you parking is is a great place to start for that. I think the crux of your book in many cases and the crux of, of the problem is, is this thing called parking minimums. You talk in the book that the parking minimums, I didn't realize this started as early as the 20s and really just grew from there. Can you can you sort of explain that? Well, I think the um, city planners were qu- pretty quickly confronted with this enormous traffic problem as the automobile ownership becomes widespread in the 1920s. And they quickly recognize that a large amount of that traffic is caused by people looking for parking. And as you say, could be 25%, could be even a third of traffic in a busy downtown place would be people looking for parking. And so they had to figure out what to do about that. And many cities opened um, huge public garages. They spent a lot of money on that. Some of them began to use uh, public space for parking cars. I mean, this is the point at which parking on the curb becomes regularized as a practice and right. the idea that curbs are for car storage becomes part of the way we think about our streets. And, and then finally, they come up with a sort of clever solution, which is let's make parking part of the zoning code so that everybody who's building anything new or renovating anything has to build a certain number of parking spots. And um, I think the logic for this is very appealing because city governments didn't want to spend their entire budget providing parking and and they thought well maybe we'll get the private sector to do it for us and i don't think they quite realized quite how successful they would be with that right right and that it's taken so long for us to understand the the ills of parking minimums yeah i mean donald shoop really blew the lid off this subject in 2005 with the high cost of free parking and for listeners who don't know that's donald shoop is a professor of urban planning at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And he wrote a um, very large but approachable and funny book about how free parking has uh, messed up our cities. And one of the things that uh, he um, really debunks in the book is the idea of parking minimums um, as a whole, uh, not, you know, even the, the the concept of how much parking should be required per land use, as Shoup shows in his book, is totally made up. And not only is it made up, but it's made up to assume that what you're building should be parked to suburban standards. And so you often end up with places that are oversupplied. And this is still true today. When you look at studies that look at apartment buildings in Washington, D.C., Chicago, the suburbs of of Seattle, the suburbs of Boston, all these places, even when they're pretty car dependent places, the parking almost always gets overbuilt. But you don't have to overbuild it by 50%. Right, and right. what you end up with when you build that much parking is 
you essentially force everybody to drive, both by creating a huge subsidy for car ownership and by creating environments where there's so much parking that it becomes that you you, you sufficiently lower the density that it becomes impossible to, to walk anywhere. People certainly do have that sense that parking ought to be convenient, available, and free. And uh, providing meeting all three of those objectives is a recipe for an environment in which parking is really the top priority, and it becomes um, challenging to to do much of anything else. These minimums are, as Shoup would put it, pseudoscience. And by building to them, we have enshrined uh, the automobile's place at the center, not just of our lives, but like literally of our buildings that um, in many cases, we've ended up with land use where uh, more than half the lot is used for parking by, right. by law. But how do we understand the damage that these arcane laws are are doing to our cities? Yeah. Uh, Taylor, I think that's that's the big question because LA and many other cities have now made it a lot easier just over the last five years. They made it a lot easier to build without required parking. And so the choke point stops being what the law requires and it starts being convincing your lenders, convincing local politicians who have approval over the project and convincing the neighbors who will show up to the community meeting and make a fuss if you don't build enough parking. And it's a really it's a it's a really big problem because we have a serious housing shortage and every time new housing gets proposed people perceive that new housing as a threat on the parking supply right well maybe you could talk quickly about the connection between parking and housing los angeles is as as many cities are is really struggling with an unhoused population and you were talking about how people react when a new building goes up or a new apartment building goes up. How, how does parking affect that? I mean, I think there's two two ways. First is that parking functions as a uh, a neighborhood political third rail, right? That stops new housing from being built. People perceive new neighbors as coming in parking space size packages, and so they right. um, they get nervous about housing for that reason. More fundamentally, when you require lots of parking. Um, not only do you wind up creating more traffic in the long run, but you also add a huge cost onto every um, development. And you make some projects impossible entirely, right? Like no one is going to build bungalow courts or uh, even dingbats uh, at the parking right. requirements that we that we we have grown accustomed to. Um, Just so people and- know, dingbats are those apartments that are ubiquitous in Los Angeles where the parking is underneath the apartment and you drive up and you park and then your apartment is over your car. And they're they're nobody's like favorite form of of housing, but they're like a big part of the LA vernacular, right. and they're a big source of you know naturally occurring affordable housing. Right. Um, so they're terribly important. And the fact that it's become the the requirements have been so high that they've been impossible to build for fifty years is a big reason that Los Angeles is in such a severe housing crisis. So I think as we rethink the the need to provide parking, we'll start to see some of those forms reappear. Obviously, we can only go so far with this before we encounter the problem that it's difficult to get anywhere without a car. So I think reforming the land use is the first step, but at the end of the day, you're also going to need to create streets that are safer, that have, you know, frequent mass transit, get people where they want to go, more amenities within walking distance, all this stuff. And I think that can, that can come with increased residential density, right? Like a, a bigger, busier neighborhood will support more institutions, more amenities, et cetera. But those two things have to go hand in hand, transportation and land use. Right. But you say in the book that in a city like Los Angeles, there are six parking places for every car. One of the reasons that people often fight bike lanes is because it often has to take away parking. You know, we need safe 
places to ride a bike to do a two mile errand. So we don't have to drive to Trader Joe's. Right. We're, we're caught in this catch 22 where people say, well, you can't, you can't take away my parking because it's not safe for me to get where I'm going on a bike, even if the distances aren't that large and could be conceivably done with some alternate means of transportation. They say it's not safe for me. And but, you know, the reason it's not safe is because we have devoted so much of our precious street space to storing cars. And you see this come every time a bike lane gets proposed or even a bus lane. And people say, well, but what about the parking? And I, I've seen two projects in California recently, both in the Bay Area, where um, bike lanes have been challenged or opposed based on um, the number of parking spaces that they're they're going to take away. And it seems pretty clear that you're, you're not going to get to this, this virtuous cycle of building less parking and people driving less unless you start with, with some safe streets infrastructure that permits people to get around another way. Um, right. And if we can't even build a bike lane without taking away, you know, without, without overcoming the furor that's created by taking away 15 parking spaces, then um, I think we're in deep trouble. Right. I want to talk a little bit about strodes. You know, this, this idea that it's not a street or a road and that it's actually city planning laws that make developers build those kinds of strodes that don't work well as a street or a road because they are required to put parking there. I think lots of times the novice minded person doesn't understand that it's actually mandated that the McDonald's have 30 spots around it. So to go from McDonald's to the Best Buy next door or to the car auto place next door, you actually have to drive because it's not a pleasant place to walk from one to the other, because it's not a street or a road where you would just drive. It's a strode. Yeah, those are pretty much, I think, the worst um, urban environment in, in the country. And that gets, again, to another way that parking encourages driving, because if you're going to require every single establishment to have its own parking supply, then you force people to get in the car to go between errands. There is no park once strategy in a place like that, like you would right. be able to do in a you know urban neighborhood where you find a good place to park the car. Maybe it's free, maybe there's a meter, but whatever. You leave it there and you go out for four hours and take your kid to a music lesson, go to the cafe, go to the gym, et cetera, whatever. Um, that's possible in a place where you can leave your car um, and, and get on foot. But in a place where you have to obviously move your car between every single errand, between every different shop, um, that's a place that's going to produce a lot more driving. Right. Uh, something as simple as putting the car uh, behind the shop can create an environment where suddenly people feel that it's a more approachable place to get to on foot, not to mention that the front door gets a lot closer to the sidewalk. Right. So that's, that's, you know, one potential change that, you know, building codes could make even without telling people to build less parking is just to build structures that, you know, conform to those standards of walkability. And that's this old, you know, you know, it's one of the new urbanist ideas, these, this group of anti-sprawl architects right. who said that, you know, you can address these kinds of designs through zoning codes. Americans are willing to walk. Americans don't always require a parking space immediately in front of their destination, right? They will settle for um, for walking a good, you know, 300, 400 meters <laughs> if it means that at the end of the at the end of the trip, they they're going to be in an environment that's pleasant and fun and full of good stuff, which is what a mall is. And so, um, the lesson the city should take from that is 
actually, just because there's no parking directly in front of the front door of the restaurant does not mean there's a parking shortage. You just need right. to tell people where the parking is and make sure that the environment is uh, pleasant and fun and safe and 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 people will even relish some of that walking time. I mean, that's what it is to be in a city is, is to go for a walk and see different things, different people. Right. Yet when you're walking through a parking lot, it's, it's just not that much fun. And in fact, people associate walking through parking lots with longer amounts of time than walking through pleasant urban environments. Like your brain literally is like, I've been here forever. You do bring up something about New York that bad parking policy actually makes the city money. And I think that that's a real impediment into making a more pleasant environment to walk, drive, park, you know, whatever it is. But because the city makes so much money in parking fines, they actually don't collect it in in parking fees. Yeah, this is a big problem. They they manage the parking not to make it easy to park, but to make a lot of money. And sometimes that means, you know, I think the city, New York City at least, is approaching this in good faith. They are trying to build loading zones so that UPS mm-hmm. drivers have a place to park, but they haven't succeeded because neighbors don't want to give up the parking spaces. So the status quo persists of double parking, lots of block traffic and traffic congestion. And then, um, and often they double park in bike lanes as well. So to get back to the point about safe right. biking infrastructure, it's also an impediment to that. But yeah, you're right. Um, it's it's a, it's a huge problem, and uh, the you know the system is run backwards. It's run to extract as much money out of people who are parked illegally, rather than making it as easy as possible, even if expensive, to park legally. How would car storage work in a perfect world? Well, I think lots of people will continue to drive. I mean, I think that, you know, America is such a, a large sprawling country and our cities are so large. It's inevitable that the automobile will continue to be the number one mode of transportation for lots of people. That said, half of all trips in big U.S. metro areas are under three miles. So that's a distance that could be conceivably made with an electric bicycle or a golf cart or on foot even. And um, we just have to make it safe to do so. And I think making those discretionary short length trips feasible by some other mode of transportation is going to require changing the way we think about parking to create the infrastructure necessary to permit those trips. But at the end of the day, it's also going to work to driver's advantage because the great scourge of the driver is traffic and no place to park. And if you can get a bunch of people to decide they're not going to make that trip in a car today, then that's to everyone's advantage. That's great. I don't know if you remember, but the opening of of the movie Cool Hand Luke that starts Paul Newman's journey into the prison system in Louisiana is cutting off the heads of parking meters. Are you serious? <laughs> that's that, every, that's how the movie opens. And I have uh, been asking people for parking um, for parking stories for five years, and that's the first time I've heard that one. So that's yeah. incredible that I missed it. Amazing. Um, Henry Grabar, the author of Paved Paradise: How Parking Explains the World. Thank you very much for writing the book and for all your research. I look forward to your future books and stories. And thank you for being on Bike Talk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the built environment is as crazy as it is because of parking minimums. I mean, we're starting to realize what a black hole that really is. And in your last year, when I was working for Laura Friedman um, in the state assembly, she banned parking minimums with uh, 2097. And I think slowly but surely we will see the impacts of that across the state of California, across the country, um, probably even further as we start to realize what we've done. There's a movement around the world for parking apps. It's an app on your phone. 
it leads you right to the closest parking spot, eliminates the anxiety around parking, which could be really game-changing. Once you see how crazy this system is, you open your eyes to it. It's the matrix. Yeah. And a corollary to the parking issue is, of course, bike lanes and how do we make it so people want to bike so we can get people out of cars. Next up, I interview Carlton Reed with Dr. Madeline Bonsma-Fisher, who is our Canadian correspondent and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto working on equitable prioritization of active transportation infrastructure in Canadian cities. I've been covering stuff on London, I think it's actually 37 years now, if I actually went backwards and, and, and counted exactly where, when I started. Uh, but I've been visiting London for many, many years when I was, say, doing bike beers, which is 25 years ago, then you'd be the only cyclist. So you'd be three or four people, cyclists, would, would rack up at a, a stoplight. Now it's, you know, you're joined by hundreds of cyclists. So it's been incredibly noticeable to somebody who's grown up in this, uh, this milieu yeah, awash with cyclists. It's just been amazing to witness. And it has, you can almost date it because uh, it, it, it did come when it was the congestion charge in London, uh, I think was was really? roughly when it started. And then, of course, the infrastructure was was put in, um, which, uh, of course, has boosted it, uh, uh, as well. So it's been all these like rockets have been put under it over the past 25 years. And, and we're now seeing the fruition of that. The statistics on people biking in London are, ins- I mean, it's incredible. Did, was London able to uniquely make it safe and attractive? I, I think we ought to, to clarify this is the city of London. So that's the square mile, the absolute heart of London. That's where the greatest number of, of cyclists are, are going in and out. And that's where they are now dominating on the streets. And they have been dominating on the streets of the city of London for a good few years. And an awful lot of that is by design. So the City of London Corporation, which which is a literally medieval organization that runs uh, the city as like a, as a, a, a municipality, they have been very proactively, very explicitly saying, we are getting rid of cars. And they just don't want uh, private motor vehicles in the City of London anymore. And they're clamping down on uh, lorries going through, making a conscious decision, and they have been for a number of years, to improve the safety for cyclists. Uh, But cyclists are this amazingly uh, big and getting bigger group. The City of London, so that really central part, has a target to reduce motor vehicle traffic by 50% by 2044. You know, that's a huge reduction. I don't know of anywhere else that's really seen changes like that. Is there anything else they're going to have to do to achieve that? Or is this all building towards that already? A lot of it is going to come down to what the parts of London around the city of London do. They've got no control over that. These roads run from the city of of London out to other parts of London. They're going to have to negotiate with municipalities that like surround it to get to that target. They can't really do it by themselves. Other parts of London are absolutely going down this this route, but nowhere near as fast as the city of London. Each municipality, each kind of like borough is its own entity. Uh, People have voted in, say, right wing. Other places are left wing. And it's very difficult for all of these to work together. So when you actually cycle around the city of London, 
you know, there's no like quarters of all of these different boroughs, but do you actually, can you notice these differences in planning policy and in political climate oh, yeah. when you're just biking around? So it's the Kensington High Street is a main uh, shopping street, a very, very busy place. During the pandemic, they put in you know, a pop-up cycleway, incredibly well used, in effect, a four-lane highway. This, even though it's a shopping street, you know, you've got speeding motor traffic, they cut one lane down, put a, a cycleway in, very well used, very popular, but it was only temporary. And the right-wing politicians in that particular borough, against an enormous amount of opposition, ripped out that particular cycleway. So you can be cycling on a nice protected uh, cycle superhighway in one part of London, and then you hit a border where maybe it's a right-wing administration, and then all of a sudden you're in the, the, the middle of all the, the untamed motor traffic. If you live in London, which I don't, but you will probably be able to navigate your way around and know the colours of the politicians just by how close you are to A, fumes and B, motor traffic. It's not totally correct to say it's a right-wing, left-wing thing, but it, it, it almost is in that the right-wing councils do tend to offer less than the left-wing councils for uh, non-motorists. It, it's so silly because everybody benefits if people bike. I mean, the drivers benefits. What do you think the tipping point has been? Has it been leadership? As you said, it was the congestion pricing, groundswell of people speaking up. I, I love your advice also on how American cities can, can replicate this. It's all of the above. I, I would say that the, the go-to example really on this one is Paris. And, and that one is very clearly uh, political leadership. So that city has been transformed under the, the, the morality of Anne Hildalgo, again, another left-wing politician. And she's been very open about uh, wanting to get rid of, of motor cars. You know, there are, there are many cities around, uh, certainly in Europe, that are going pretty fast at this. You know, Barcelona, Ghent. You know, I don't think it's groundswell of people demanding this. It's generally political leadership. Cash is important. But the one thing you've got to have is buy-in from either a very strong leader, it's almost totalitarian in that respect, or a whole bunch of politicians singing from the same hymn sheet, maybe from like a, a party manifesto. And that's where the left-wing councils generally are singing from that hymn sheet in that have a left-wing agenda to uh, in increase amenities for people not solely in, in motor vehicles. Because I, I really agree that it's it, when you're in the philosophical, it's really easy to see cars as aspirational and an elixir. Um, but when mm. you get into the nitty gritty and you you want to you know build a functioning city where people aren't forced to spend all this money, um, a practical politician, I can see where they get you very quickly get to bikes as a solution to a host of issues. So no brainer for a certain distance, like the the, the very very popular or unpopular, depending on your point of view, 15-minute cities. Right now, that's that's tends to be, you know, 15-minute city is is how far you can walk. Of course, if you've got a 15-minute bicycle city, that's that's quite a large city. You can, you know, you can get a fair old distance in 15 minutes on a bicycle. So the bicycle, as always, since late 1860s, when this contraption came on the streets and they added the pedals, has been something to make pedestrians faster. And of course, you're not getting clogged up in, in in traffic. So incredibly efficient. There are so many efficiencies of a bike. It's also, I think, the most efficient 
mechanical device ever created that uses the least amount of energy. Um, mm -hmm. No, I, I think bikes are pretty close to perfect inventions. <laughs> In, you've been covering this for 37 years. Are we on an upward trajectory towards more livable cities? Or um, what do you see as the pattern? More livable cities, yes, definitely. That's that's absolutely where we're, we're going. The IPCC, you know, six... Uh, climate report spells out we have got to reduce motoring we have got to make cities livable not only because it's quite nice to live in a, a nice city a livable city but also for for very good climate reasons so the trajectory is definitely going towards liberal one of the reasons cycling has boomed in london and this is absolute key it's not putting the bikeways in that's necessary but it's not one of it's not just the only thing you must do you've got to actively uh, go against cars. Uh, the, there are many examples I can show you here, but just if you say that like the share the road thing, if you made everything equal and you made great facilities for buses, great facilities for pedestrians, great facilities for motorists, great facilities for cyclists, everybody's got this fantastic equal uh, mode of transportation, everybody's safe, everybody, what's going to get used the most? It's going to be cars every single time so it's a it's a sad state of affairs but if you want any of those other modes to be increased you've got to actually decrease the mode that most people would go for why wouldn't you go in a motor car there are good reasons why you shouldn't because you might get stuck in traffic but you can listen to your podcasts you're dry there are good reasons why cars are popular the future is getting people out of cars, and that's a big stick. I think we put loads of carrots, build the bikeways, build wider sidewalks. They're carrots. They're great. They'll increase uh, mode share a bit. But the thing that will increase it the most, and, and this is where we came in and talked about wider London, congestion charge. What did that do? It made motoring more expensive. Uh, narrowing the roads, what does that do? It makes motoring slower. You've got to slow motorists down. You cannot have any 60 mile an hour roads through a city. You've got to, in effect, punish motorists for their choice. So that's what Paris is doing. That's what City of London is doing. They are punishing motorists. So this thing about, oh, there is no such thing as the war on cars. There is, and there has to be. You have to have a war on cars to win the, this battle because cars are so damn comfortable, nice, You've got to actually hit people over the heads to get them out of their cars. The people are so married to their cars for very good reasons. It's not illogical to be in love with a motor car. It just isn't. Uh, as much as I, I, it pains me to say that, it's just not illogical. It, it's absolutely logical to, to want to drive everywhere and to, to do 200 meter journeys to the shops. If you can, why wouldn't you? In America, the problem is it's so unsafe to do anything other than mm. get in a car, you know, for your own personal safety, for your kids' safety, you know, you're just left with no choice. Mm. And, you know, it, it, if it's pleasant to walk um, or, you know, safe to bike, I think they do opt in. Um, and the, the Dutch have some, some people, yeah. some people, a small number. If you've somehow made it nice for pedestrians, and nice for cyclists, then it's it's got to be horrible for motorists. If it's not horrible for motorists, right. well, people are going to carry on driving. Right. It's not quite the exact example because this is a strange place in some ways. But the city of the town, town of Stevenage in, in the UK is a new town. 
um, 40 odd miles outside of London uh, in the 1950s. They put in a Dutch style network of of cycleways. They're still there today. Uh, they're they're relics. They're dinosaurs, but they're they're there, and you can get everywhere in Stevenage on your bicycle. Every school is connected with these high quality, you know, Dutch Dutch people used to come to Stevenage to see how to put in the cycleways. You know, it was like it was it was really a, a, advanced. But you've also got a fantastic road network. And there are very few traffic lights. You can just get everywhere in Stevenage very easily in your car. And the designer of those cycleways, a guy called Eric Claxton, to his dying day, was always shocked at how nobody cycled and how cycle usage went down, even though he'd provided a Dutch town. He, he just couldn't figure out why are people not cycling in Stevenage, you know, I've given them a Dutch style network. And it was because he also gave them fantastic roads. So people just drove. Why would you not drive? If the roads are free flowing, there you, you do not get stuck in Stevenage. You can get anywhere in Stevenage very easily, very quickly, very comfortably. It's built for motor cars and it's also built for bicycles. But the mode that dominates by huge numbers is the motor car because it's so easy to get around. It's a very American uh, uh, system. All the things that bicycle advocates say is like, oh, if only we put in a, a you know, Dutch style network, we'll get the usage. We have a Dutch style network. It didn't work. If you make somewhere beautifully perfect for motorists, beautifully perfect for cyclists and pedestrians, people will still carry on driving. You've got to make motoring inefficient, uncomfortable, all of these things, which which it currently isn't. And you've got to price it out. You've got to make motorists go around long distances to stop people driving because people will continue to drive if you allow them to. And that sounds terrible to a, you know, to a mainstream person. They're thinking, what are you talking about? Why? This is, you know, just a natural thing to do to get into a car, uh, to make a, a short journey. And if we don't take those drastic measures, no amount of carrots are going to help. You know, one percentage points, two percentage points you might get. But if we want meaningful upticks, we've got to do what City of London's doing, and that is aggressively going after motor cars. You know, people are not cycling in the Netherlands anywhere near as much as they used to do. And they drive lots. People drive lots in, in, in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands is actually a, a good example of somewhere that's actually, if it wants to even keep the 25 average percent modal share, if they want to keep that, they're going to have to aggressively go after motorists because the, the cycling modal share in the Netherlands is at risk of, they're going to be wiped off the map by other cities. You know, the Londons, the Parises of this world, you know, in 20, 30 years, you can imagine them being higher modal share than than some of the cities we consider to be cycling cities of the Netherlands today. And that's because they're not going after the car. They're building for the car. The the, the Dutch are spending billions upon billions of euros for 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 motorists. And they're gonna they're gonna reap the um what, what what's coming down to them, down the down the pike. They're gonna get an uh, enormous amount of congestion. Uh, in the future, because they are investing in in motor cars, and other cities have seen the light 
in effect, and are going to be uh, clamping down as as the city of London is doing on on motor cars, and that brings the bicyclist out when you clamp down on the motor cars. So all these other things, all the other factors are, are there and in the mix. Yes, you've got to have cycleways. Yes, you've got to have marketing. Yes, you've probably got to have training even for people on bicycles. But at the end of the day, if you don't clamp down on motoring, it's it's all pretty much a waste of time. That This is so amazing and interesting because I, I, I just really hadn't seen it that way. Can, can you imagine any city becoming almost car-free? City of London is, is definitely heading that way. And the strategy is very radical, is to get rid of motor cars. So the city of London is is definitely on that uh, trajectory. Uh, and explicitly, you know, they're not hiding it. They're not, you know, they're not trying to smuggle this one through. They're very explicitly saying we want cars out of our city. Uh, Paris, uh, to a, a lesser or greater extent, is certainly has that ambition. Um, and then again, Ghent is, is one with their circulation plan. Is uh, when they build on that is definitely getting motor cars out. Birmingham in the uk which is which is the uk's uh detroit you know it was a motor city it was built on the the building of motor cars they've got very radical plans to get rid of motor cars i couldn't agree more biking is our happiest form of transportation we love to bike it has to be uncompromisingly safe as safe as any other activity but it also has to be very inconvenient to drive. So the minute you can drive, you're going to drive. But, mm-hmm. you know, statistically, you know, maybe we just need to have almost car-free cities where it's about biking and people opt into that lifestyle. Yes. I, I feel like this is an important message for the advocacy community to understand. Because <laughs> I think we keep trying to split the baby and we're, we're ending up with nothing. I have been doing this an awfully long time. I have seen... Bicycle advocates, I've seen probably about four or five generations of bicycle advocates burn out because I think too many of them assume it's bike lanes above all else, and that's what they push for. And then they don't get them in many places. And so after about three or four, five years, they just stop becoming uh, bicycle advocates because they didn't really get it. When they do get it, and they do get bike lanes put in, and it doesn't lead to this reasonably quick uh, transformation. Then they get disillusioned, and I, I've seen so many. I could, I could, I, I certainly can picture them in my mind of these people who were pushing for bicycles when I was started pushing for bicycles in the nineteen eighties, are no longer pushing for bicycles. They moved on. I'm, I'm the stick in the 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 mud. I've just stuck at it. And I don't get disillusioned. And and partly I think that's because I'm not fixated on 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 one magic solution. It's got to be a range of measures. And that's why now in my 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 writing for various publications, it's it's broadened out to being not about um bicycles anymore. It's more about sustainable sustainability in general and sustainable transport. And it generally comes down to measures to stop people motoring. So we are just, you know, ticking away at, at the edges by putting bike lanes in. You yeah. know, if, if you're not getting rid of the cars, then no amount of bike lanes are not going to not going to do it. I love bike lanes. Don't get me wrong, but it's not going to get the masses on on bikes. 
thank you again. This has just been absolutely fascinating. Quite all right. The sad thing is when a car and a bike collide, the car wins. We need a war on cars. If the war on cars consists of races, yesterday I won that race. I had a, a battle with a loud car. Well, bikes are often faster than cars. In an urban driving situation with stop signs and traffic mm -hmm. lights. And I ran stop signs. The Idaho stop just got legalized in Minnesota. You can treat a stop sign as a yield if you're on a bicycle. Another notch in our belt is right. Minnesota. Bicycles follow the right of way. So it has been bike month and we had uh, the ride of silence. I've been on a ride of silence and, and I see ghost bikes around town. It really is a powerful experience. It's a slow ride. It's a silent ride. And it's a ride that acknowledges all the people that have been injured and killed while riding a bike. Reverend Joe Borfo. This is Reverend Joe Borfo. Last week in Los Angeles was the Ride of Silence. It was held at Reciclos, which is a co-op founded by Jimmy Lozama that makes cargo bikes and fabricates bikes for the community. They started the ride at that location. It's a memorial ride for fallen riders. The people who organized this pulled a trailer. It was a large trailer that they had covered in a white tarp and it was lit from within and it had a uh, black lettering inside so that the letters popped. I don't know, it was kind of haunting and beautiful. Everyone had patches that said different things like share the road, just trying to get home. Uh, so it affected me greatly. I hope people will become more aware. Welcome again, everybody. Uh, to the space. Uh, I guess first and foremost, let's uh, get a little grounded and realize that we are on Tongva land, right? A place where there wasn't uh, machines and there wasn't inequity in the way that it is today. Um, and there was a lot more harmony with, with nature, with earth, with humans, with all beings here before we created modernization. So get grounded with that as you ride today through what is Tongvaland. Um, thank you to Ralph, Anne-Marie, and the whole Trash Panda cycling crew for always uh, pushing to get this ride together every year. And remember all the fallen human bodies, souls, um, here in LA, in our country, around the world, who are doing the simple thing of going from point A to point B, right? And that should never be a reason why you lose your life. Recently, I've been myself, by the way, I'm Jimmy. <laughs> I'm Jimmy Lazama. And uh, the space here is called Reciclos, and uh, we, um, we recycle old bicycles and make cargo bicycles for, for folks who need them whenever possible. Uh, and they are used to carry humans, groceries, anything else in a way that's not destructive to the, the planet and in a way it doesn't kill other people in the process. That's a bicycle. Uh, but I was saying that I've recently been involved in a lot of conversations around equity and mobility, uh, justice and transportation. And the more you undo the layers, you see the classism, you see the racism, 
you see the avarice that is the way that we get around the city. And so I want to say thank you to everybody here for showing up with their souls, with their hearts, with their minds, not just to make a statement, but to honor all, all of us out here uh, every day, biking with our human bodies, uh, and again, not hurting other people in that process. So yeah, hold that space, love one another, obviously be respectful to each other and to everybody out there, and exude the love that it is to be uh, a person on a bicycle. Not just a cyclist, but a person on a bicycle out here in Los Angeles. So thank you all for being here and more power. Hi, I'm Anne Marie, I'm one of the organizers. Uh, again, thank you for being here um, so we can honor and remember cyclists who've been injured and killed and demand better. Um, bear with me, I had to write stuff down so I don't forget everything I want to say. Uh, so five years ago, my partner was killed uh, while riding his bike. Uh, not only was he riding, he was working as a courier for a company who claimed it was his choice to be out there taking the risks so he could make a living. A company who offered incentive pay when it rained when roads are more dangerous, who freed themselves of any liability when people get hurt or injured. It's a common theme. We don't really have much choice when we need to pay rent and to feed ourselves and support our families. We don't have much choice when the space we inhabit is hostile to our movement. We still have to go places and live our lives. He had a full life ahead of him, a family and a community who loved him. He would be out here too doing this exact thing. He should still be here and I carry the grief of his loss every day. I want the city to stop framing this as isolated tragedies that are normal part of life because this isn't normal. They normalize all of this death when they've designed the roads and the channels of movement to be this way. They need to stop blaming people who suffer from this design and question the design itself. Stop upholding the mindset that only drivers belong on the road because they'll act that way, and they do. Stop just giving a slap on the wrist when a cyclist is killed. I know it's hard for them because it involves questioning the status quo and questioning systemic racism and classism that's built into the environment, but that's what we need. And the lack of serious action despite so much death speaks volumes. Public space should not be a hostile space to anyone. It shouldn't be uneven to the point that a person in a car capable of ridiculous and life-ending speeds takes priority over everything else. The whole landscape caters to their quick and efficient movement and works to render any other users lesser than or invisible. When you build all space around cars, you cater to the security and comfort of more privileged groups and disrupt, ignore, and actively harm everyone else. People ride their bikes for all sorts of reasons and none of them mean a cyclist should be killed. We bike to work, we bike for work, we bike uh, to school, we bike for exercise, we bike for fun because we enjoy biking, we bike to build community, we bike to question and protest the up system. No one should be afraid for their life because they're on a bike. Movement, mobility, or a lack thereof is political. We can see whose movements are prioritized and whose are constrained, who is safe and who's more at risk. You can't individualize this problem. It's happening on a grand scale and it will keep happening if action isn't taken. 
Promises and good intentions do nothing. We don't want lip service, we want action. The city could make vast and lasting changes if it really wanted to, and actually prioritize the people and communities they've ignored for so long. Let's keep fighting this fight. Let's support the groups already doing this work. Let's be visible in our outrage and heartbreak. We are absolutely causing a disruption to a system that needs to be disrupted. Let's keep fighting for our loved ones, for our friends, for our communities. Memory to those who have been injured, those who have been lost while on the bike, as we all experience right now during this very brief ride, trying to occupy space on the streets. We were met with some support, uh, but then mainly we were met with frustration, antagonization, uh, and this is brought on from a culture that prioritizes motorism and you know the convenience to that motorism than the mobility of everyone. And that's one of the things that we are always advocating for, always fighting for, that we all have a rightful place in our own mobility, mobility within our cities, uh, where we live, and promoting safety, uh, peace of mind. And we hope that tonight's ride has pushed that a little bit further, but as always with last year's ride, with this year's ride, and as we continue, this is an ongoing dialogue with ourselves, with our communities, and we need to keep that dialogue going. We're the choir, we're the ones that it gets preached to, and we understand it, but it needs to go out to our extended circles, our families, our friends who are not cyclists, so that way, hopefully, they may understand better what it means for mobility for everyone and safety for everyone. So hopefully today, this evening has been a stepping stone for that. And for you all being here, we thank you. I'm Rafael Hernandez. Um, I'm the lead organizer of uh, Trash Panda Cycling and a, a collective member for No More Ghost Bikes Los Angeles. Um, this evening, we've just concluded hosting the Ride of Silence, which historically is a ride uh, that's hosted around May uh, every year around the country, usually different entities within the various cities that spread throughout the country will host this ride uh, in solidarity with each other um, as it's a evening of reverence and memory for those who have been injured or lost while riding their bike. Um, no More Ghost Bikes LA, uh, we started organizing ourselves, um, you know, collected from different members throughout the community for the joint cause of trying to promote uh, more advocacy for the cycling community. And yeah, we usually try to bring riders from around the city together so we could um, circulate through the road, make our presence known, um, try to answer any questions to passersby who may wonder why we're riding. Um, but most importantly, it's to revere and bring memory to those who we've lost. My name is Anne-Marie Drolet. I'm with No More Ghost Bikes, and I was one of the ride organizers. I'm Christina Lugo. I'm with No More Ghost Bikes. I'm a, one of the ride organizers. My name's Meg Wachter. I'm also an organizer with No More Ghost Bikes. One of the messages that I want passersby and cars to get from this ride is that we also are allowed to be on the streets. We have the legal rights to be on the streets. They're for everybody, not just cars. The city is designed around cars for their efficient movement, for the comfort of people driving cars. But we need to question that design because it's killing people. And it's giving people who drive the mindset that they own the road and that they're the only ones who should be on it. And that is 
not, <laughs> that's yeah, not yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah, and just the, the fact that we are out there taking up space, taking up, um, you know, both lanes, uh, the entire road most of the time during the ride um, was also part of the statement. The cars had to wait behind us um, from the, talking to the people in the back. It sounded like the cars were really aggressive, um, you know, and it's this is part of the statement, you know, like we deserve to be on the road and you have to wait. Um, you know, most of the time we get pushed aside or terrified uh, or driven off the road. And uh, during this ride, that's not happening. We're not uh, letting that happen. We are taking up space and you have to wait. We are friends. Uh, we are cyclists. We uh, came together about a year ago. Uh, April of 2022 was a particularly horrific month uh, for cycling deaths. Um, and there was just need for collective activism, uh, expression of grief, <laughs> holding space, um, that we decided to organize a ride of silence uh, in commune with the rest of the country, the world, I believe. Today is a national day of that's, uh, there's rides across the country. Mm -hmm. And like Anne-Marie and Christina said, taking up space is a statement. Um, I myself have been hit before. My partner's been hit before. Most people I know that ride a bike have been hit by a car and it's an unfortunate, it's up and that you know like beyond that i'm a taxpayer and i have a legal right to be on the road um i think in la in particular a city that could be the cycling capital of the country because we can ride our bikes year round that there's it's just it's maddening there's no infrastructure in the city um and we know why it's the car capital of the country um money talks um, and like Anne-Brie had spoke before this is just beyond mobility this is classism this is racism this speaks to so many elements that are tied together it's so layered um, not everyone can afford a car and our unfortunately our public transit system is also laid to waste um, there's just so many things that the city could be better could lead by example even like um, we're, we're a joke compared to most European cities, if not all, that have um, more, more cohesion in, in infrastructure. You know, we're preaching to the choir here. Everyone that's here is here because they ride for fun, for commuting, because they have to or for work. And we all understand the risks involved, the unfortunate risks involved of cycling. Um, that we want to make a broader message and just like if we slowed someone's commute home tonight in a car like we're all just trying to get somewhere yeah just take a moment to think you know look at our signs look at what our signs are saying why don't you just while you sit there just think about it the signs saying share the road don't run over me <laughs> just trying to get home no more ghost bikes. And then I guess to speak about the name, no more ghost bikes, it was something that we talk about that again, and within the cycling community, most folks understand what a ghost bike is. Um, they are white bicycles that are put up in memoriam where folks have been hit and killed. Um, and 
within the community. That is just something that we all unfortunately understand what that represents. Um, but again, speaking to a larger audience that's beyond the cycling community to understand what that means. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.